Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So during World War II, the mountain island of Crete, off the coast of Greece, was occupied by the Nazis. And it was actually a very, uh, it was a strategic point during the war. And there was this small group of resistance fighters that consisted of uh, Brits, as well as uh, native Cretans, that decided, they came with this audacious plan to abduct a German general and uh, take them off the island. And here's the thing, these these resistance fighters, they weren't like SEAL commando types or paratroopers. One was a penniless artist, another was a young shepherd, and another was a playboy poet. Yet somehow they're able to pull off this amazing feat of strength and endurance and wits. And my guest today wanted to figure out, how did these guys do it? Uh, His name is Christopher McDougal, and his book that he retraces the steps of these resistance fighters is called natural born heroes how a daring band of misfits masked the lost secrets of strength and endurance and in it he follows the steps of these resistance fighters and along the way finds out and it, it discovers this ancient art of heroism that the greeks developed thousands of years ago that consisted of skills but as, as well as virtues that a hero should develop and that they taught one another really fascinating um if you love greek history you're gonna love this podcast we talk about pancration which is this this brutal form of martial arts that the greeks greeks developed we talk about uh endurance running and fascia and the power of fascia we talk about um intuitive aiming and shooting we talk about the skills and the virtues the greeks developed like uh Arete and Paideia and Xenia, and we'll discuss what those all mean. And then how we today, even below average Joe Blows, can develop these this lost art of heroism as well in our own lives. Really fun podcast. I think you're going to enjoy it. And uh, be sure to check out the show notes after you're done listening for links to resources and things we mentioned in the podcast so you can delve deeper into the topic. You can find that at AOM. You can find those show notes at aom.is slash heroes. And uh, as always, I, if you enjoy the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. All right, Chris McDougall, welcome to the show. Delighted to be here, Brett. Uh, so your book is, uh, your latest book is Natural Born Heroes. Uh, Mastering the Lost Secrets of Strength and Endurance is now available on paperback. 
Um, and this, I love this book. It's just jam packed. It's, it's got a great story, but then it's jam packed with all these rabbit holes of interest into ancient Greek culture, which I love. Um, so it's about the these secrets of strength and endurance that the Greeks understood and taught. Um, and you try to find out about these things and how to re- how we can recover them today. But you start the book off talking about this group of resistance fighters on the island of Crete during World War II that consisted of uh, natives, but as well as this ragtag group from, uh, I didn't know this organization existed, it was the British Special Operations Executive. Right. Can you tell our listeners uh, the backstory of what this, you know, who these people were, why they were unique, and how they managed to kidnap a Nazi general? You know, it's fascinating, and I think it's what makes your site so important, is it's remarkable how short-sighted humanity is, how short-sighted we are as a species. Because if anything predates like 15 years ago, it's as if it never happened. And, you know, we keep rediscovering stuff like, oh my God, the kettlebells, you know, Indian clubs, like what an amazing invention. Like, dude, these have been around forever. And yet we just keep forgetting about them. And that's what I think initially led me to this whole saga because – I stumbled across this story about a Cretan shepherd who became a foot messenger during World War II. And as I'm reading about his adventures, I, I suddenly like hit the brakes and said, well, wait a second. There's no way. There's no way anybody runs 50 miles through mountainous terrain on a starvation diet, delivers a message, has a shot of moonshine, and then turns around and runs back another 50 miles. Forget it. It's 100 miles of ultra-endurance athletics off trail with no caloric intake. It's physically impossible. So I began researching that, like, you know, physiologically, how can you pull off something like that? And what it led me across, again, was this whole bizarre adventure story that is a drama in its own right. But to me, what was much more interesting was unpacking all the fitness and health and, I guess, social psychology secrets that are new to us, but basically everyday life for every indigenous culture on the planet that has not been exposed to modern technology. Gotcha. So this adventure story you talk about uh, is amazing, and you weave it throughout your book, and then uh, you take, you know, there's stopping points where you go on these segues about exploring the the physiology, the, the nutrition, you know, what made it possible that these guys were able to do this. Um, so let's start there. I mean, you you the, the kind of the main premise of this book is these – this re- these resistance fighter- fighters were harnessing this idea of heroism that existed since the times of ancient Greece, since Odysseus, Achilles, Plato, Aristotle. Um, so can you tell us how did the ancient Greeks define heroism and how is it different from how we think of heroism today? Sure. Well, again, this was a perfect learning laboratory because, you know, one thing about World War II was you, you don't get any more higher stakes than that. There's there is no thinner margin of error than fighting the most deadly killing force in human history, you know, opposing the Nazi regime. So well, again, one thing which was important for me at the beginning was realizing that the group you mentioned, the special operations executive, this kind of stuff was brand new because prior to World War II, warfare was conventional. You know, you had your army, I had mine. I dug my trenches, you dug your trenches. And we sat there and we shot at each other until we were all dead. 
Well, then Churchill, who was a veteran of the colonial wars, and he'd been getting his ass handed to him by Boer fighters, by you know Punjabis, by the IRA. He'd had him personally and also the forces under his command had constantly been sniped at by um, guerrilla forces, you know, in disguise in the colonies. So at World War II, he created innovation. He's like, you know what? Why don't we just fight undercover? But again, you didn't want to take your best soldiers and put them undercover behind enemy lines because you actually needed those guys to, to man the artillery. So they took basically the has-beens, the misfits, the, you know, the 45-year-old history professors and the 37-year-old librarians, the guys who spoke a little bit of a foreign language, they stuck those guys behind enemy lines. So for me, this became the perfect learning laboratory. If you take somebody who is not fit to be a hero, can that person undergo some kind of process where they go from sort of zero to hero in as limited time as possible and under the greatest possible stress. And that's basically led me back to the ancient Greek art of the hero, which again, unfortunately, I didn't really realize existed. I mean, I'm, I'm a product of my culture. So I believed a hero was the guy with the six pack abs and the double guns kicking down the door. You know, it was the strongest, toughest guy in the room. I didn't realize that, and again, it should have been obvious, but why let heroism be a product of chance? Why not make it a statistical probability by teaching everybody the fine art of how to be a hero? And that's essentially what these misfit soldiers underwent when they went to Crete. They basically learned the ancient Greek art of the hero. So your question was, what is it? You know, essentially, it's it comes down to three things. You take the lowest common denominators of your culture and things that everybody shares, and you find ways to burnish those common skills so that they're practical in a crisis. And for the Greeks, that relied on three things, all three of which which were indispensable, uh, strength, skill, and compassion. And when you look at those three things, they've been ritualized in every major culture and religion throughout history. You know, they are mind, body, and soul. They are all, all the tenets of major religion have to do with the fact that you have to be physically capable, you have to have intellectual skills, and you have to have a connection to your fellow humans. So that's basically what it is, strength, skill, and compassion. If you have any two overwhelming the third, then the, then the stool topples over. So all three of those things have got to be harnessed and polished and perfected. Gotcha. So strength was uh, erite, right, in Greek? Exactly. Skill is paide paideia? Paideia, exactly. And then uh, ha compassion, or another way it translates is uh, hospitality, zenia. Yeah, exactly. Zenia. Yeah. And I, I guess there were they, the, the Greeks um, looked to their heroes, like from the, the great myths, that each you know, they had heroes that embodied each of these traits. So I mean, I guess Achilles would be the strength guy, the erite guy, the excellence and strength. Uh, Odysseus, the skillful guy, the wily guy. I don't know who would. I guess all of them exhibited Xenia uh, to it, some it, extent. Even Hercules, all of them for sure. But you know, it's funny. So um, uh, Greg is it Gregory Nagy or Nagel Nagy, right? The uh, Harvard professor who specializes in Greek mythology and heroes. He wrote an entire book about Odysseus called The Best of the Achaeans. And uh, I believe Homer would identify Odysseus as the best of the Achaeans. You know, he is the he is the hero of heroes. But you look at Odysseus, Odysseus he's kind of a he's kind of a
You know, he's he's the guy who's always trying to like get out of combat, doesn't want to fight, always pulling some some fast one on somebody. And in some ways, he's kind of the, the biggest scumbag of the Greek pantheon. But from the Greek perspective, he is the hero of heroes because he's he's connected to his people. I mean, he he is fighting his way back home to get to his wife and son, no matter what. He is tied in with his people. And the people who come to him to fight with him are his servants, you know, the people who are underneath him. They love him because he loves them. Uh, he uses his brain first and his muscle second. But both of them are pretty formidable. Like, you don't want to fuck with Odysseus. But anyway, you know, Odysseus is a guy that you push him, man. He will destroy you. But he will try and scheme his way out of trouble first. When you look at all of the Greek uh, heroes and demigods, we tend to think of them as loners. But without exception, every single one of them has some very tight uh, sibling bond or, or um filial bond with somebody else. Uh, with Achilles, it was uh, Patroclus. You know, he, he loved him like a brother and would not go into battle, you know, without Patroclus by his side. Hercules had uh, his close friends and a half-brother that he was completely devoted to. So the idea is that you have to be tightly knit to your group or you're kind of you're kind of useless. Right. And that, that going back to that being useless, I mean, you, you talk about this in the book for the Greeks and for other indigenous uh, cultures, ancient cultures, you know, the defining mark of manhood or adulthood was you had to be able to rescue someone. You had to be able to help people. That was what made you an adult in that culture. But somehow we've lost that concept today. Yeah, it's, it's uh, you're right. And again, I, I'm, I'm sort of stuck with remorse because I feel like I am the symptom that I'm talking about. I, I feel like I was raised that way. The idea is, you know, unfortunately, we are creatures that are perfectly evolved to deal beautifully in an emergency. Uh, the human animal is fantastic at adapting at all kinds of quick physical responses. Yet we also have a brain which tries to conserve energy at all costs. And so what we've done is we've outsourced all of our emergency crisis control to other people. And so, you know, right now, you know, if someone steals my car, I don't chase the guy. I call the cops. If my house is on fire, I, I don't get a hose. I, I call the fire department. If I want food, I pick up my phone and have someone bring me food. You know, again, the most basic elemental need in human life to sustain yourself with food, well, we, we have other people do it for us. So that unfortunately is a situation we've gotten ourselves into, which is that we don't realize anymore that we are responsible, not just for ourselves, but, but for others. And to be responsible for others means that you have to know stuff. You know, you have to be ready to pick up a child. And, you know, it sounds easy, but if you were actually trying to pick up a kid, you know, a 10-year-old kid, they're, they're kind of hard to pick up. You know, like they're not properly balanced. They don't come with the right handles. And, you know, most of us have gotten away from a sense of fitness as being something useful and we've turned it into something that is just purely self-glamorizing. Right. Yeah. You want to sculpt the perfect body. That's what it's about now. Yeah. Um, so these uh, British resistance fighters, they were steeped in this culture of heroism that still existed uh, on the island of Crete uh, at the time, even though this was thousands of years after the, the, the heyday of the ancient Greeks. Um, and so along the way, they picked up these skills, this idea of physical fitness, this idea of compassion. Um, so let's kind of get into the, the physiology that you explore uh, in this book. So 
you talk about that that runner who was able to run across these rugged Cretan mountains, fifty miles, starvation diet, but still managed to do it. Drink some moonshine, and then go back. And you talk, you have a chapter in your book about uh, the Cretan bounce, is what you call it, um, and you use it to explore the power of our fascia. So, what what can we learn about the Cretan bounce? About the ability to use this power in our you know, fascia. It's not muscle. It's not bone. It's sort of like chickens. I don't know. It's kind of weird stuff. Can you explain what fascia is and like the power that's in it? I'm going to use your definition. It's kind of weird stuff. Let's, let's just go with that. Yeah. So here's the, here's the deal with this. Um, there are a couple of threads that, which, uh, became braided together. One was, you know, when I heard about this bizarre operation on Crete where the resistance decided, you know what, rather than getting chased by the Germans, let's, let's go get one of them for ourselves. And they decided to go kidnap the commanding German general on the island of Crete, which, you know, again, it's just a really, really stupid idea. It's a, it's a bad idea. No one has ever tried it in modern military history. It's just uh, way too high risk. But it's a very Cretan thing to do, right? Like, it's a totally Cretan thing to do, which is, I, you know, uh, yeah. And I guess that's the reason why these guys tend to pull this kind of stuff off. It's so brazen. It is so anti-intellectual. It, it throws the textbook away. But again, that's what was winning the war, was throwing away the textbook. And what was so cool about it, though, was in some ways, these guys kind of overlooked an obvious problem, which is like, you're on an island, dudes. There's nowhere to go. You get this guy, like, then, then what? What's the next move? Which is basically you go on the run in a confined space. So, again, it's a totally brazen move. And they were on the run for more than a month. So imagine that. You are in a race that goes on 24-7 for 40 days, being pursued by, like, attack dogs and pissed-off German soldiers. So um, the thing about this was – yeah, so I want to know how they could physically pull this off. And when I would read up on battles and um, guerrilla warfare and colonial fights on Crete, I kept coming across these references to a unique way that the Cretans would move. And anybody could always spot a Cretan across the landscape because they move like mountain goats. These guys are bouncing as quickly uphill as they're going downhill. And I was finding this in military accounts, you know, dating back in the 17 and 1800s. And then when I was on Crete myself, I went over there to recreate the exact footsteps of these guys who ran through the mountains. And I saw the same thing. You know, I'd be, you know, 10,000 feet up a mountain and I look above me and there's some shepherd, you know, just bouncing along like he's in one of those like kid moon bounces. So I became, I became fascinated by what is, how do these guys do this? And it led me to a whole new field of research into human fascia. And there's a guy named Tom Myers, an, an, an anatomist. And he really sort of revolutionized uh, the perspective on human strength by turning his scalpel sideways. You know, ordinarily, when you would dissect a cadaver, you cut through all the sort of the, fil- the skin, the filmy stuff, until you get down to all like the meat and muscle below. Well, what, what Tom Myers realized is that anywhere you're cutting a cadaver, you're coming across this this same filmy kind of like exo webbing. So rather than cut through it, he turned his scalpel sideways and began to essentially skin bodies to see what is between the muscle and the skin. And what he found is this really fascinating kind of like web um, – it's like a wetsuit coating throughout our bodies of this very – strong sort of tensile resisting rubbery substance called fascia. And what Myers realized is, you know, the fascia 
is like the uh, the cat gut in a tennis racket. It's it's the string on the bow. So you can use your muscular force to pull back the bowstring, but the real thrust comes from the string itself, comes from that rubbery tendon. So what he began to look at the human body is instead of it being something dominated by muscle, the muscle is a minor player which is essentially just pulling the fascia back into position. And it's the, the recoil and the snap of the fascia, which really provides the power and force. So the Cretans were, with their sort of, their uh, their bounce they used, were taking advantage of their fascia, which allowed them to go long distance without tiring, I guess is what's going on. Precisely. And, you know, I see it myself now, too. Um, I'm kind of a poor student of my own theories because I'll learn something, I'll do it, but, you know, as fatigue sets in lessons go out the window so if i'm on a trail run right now i'll be going great i'll be bouncing over rocks i'll be leaping over logs but then you get tired and i start to revert back to this heavy plodding muscular driven gait and i'll start to wonder man why, why is my groin hurt like you know why are my legs so tired and i'll look down and realize that i'm no longer using that cretin bounce and i've got to remind myself to to get back to that much more bouncy stride yeah, we'll get back to uh, fascia later when we talk about MoveNet, because um, I'm a big fan of MoveNet and Erwan LaCour's work that he's doing. But yeah, that, that fascia, I mean, that's kind of what that's what Bruce Lee used, right, with his famous, you know, punch, one-inch punch. Like, it wasn't muscle. It was just he was using this elasticity to b- deliver that blow and be able to knock someone down. Yeah, you know, it's funny, too, how we've, again, uh, approached martial arts and fighting. Uh, you know, we've gotten this very – I mean, we look at, like, MMA as being – you know, the ultimate, like, no rules combat, but there's a ton of rules. There's a ton of stuff you can't do. It's a sport. In the octagon. Exactly. It's a, it's a sport, yeah, a sport slash performance. Uh, we don't want to, you don't want to repel your viewers by gouging out somebody's eyeball. So things are kept within a certain level of decorum. But in real fighting, those, those rules don't exist. And the idea is you want to use maximum force and minimum energy. And Bruce Lee, again, was a perfect embodiment of that, a relatively small guy who learned how to use what he called the one-inch punch. He, uh, he would say that his punch with his right fist began with his left toe, and everything would torque and twist and uh, unload like a, like a slingshot. Right, using his body like a bow. Yeah. Um, so let's go, you know, going on to this fighting thing, let's continue this fighting theme. You talk about uh, this fellow named Rex Applegate. Yeah. Uh, World War II... He taught. He he wrote the manual for hand to hand combat for I guess the Marines. I guess is that what it was during World War II, and he had this intuitive understanding of the best way to fight with weapons in hand in hand. That you you argue is what the Greeks understood as well. Uh, so he tells about a little bit about Rex Applegate and um, the way he approached fighting both with uh, with weapons and with your hands. This is one of like the fascinating stories that I came across completely by accident, and I think it worked backwards. I was um, looking to the special operations executive. So here you got Churchill. He wants to create this whole new undercover special forces thing, but it's never existed before. And so he had to find some trainers. And what he did was he, he brought back these guys, Fairbairn and Sykes. These uh, basically cops who were serving in Shanghai, British cops serving in Shanghai. And Shanghai was just like the gutter, man. It was like the dirtiest, toughest part of town uh, of the world. It was like the world's like fighting capital. So he brings these two guys back to teach real street combat to his new, uh, newly recruited misfits. 
And um, they were unbelievably effective. They were just transforming these guys because they were basically teaching them how to fight in a real gutter situation. Now, Rex Applegate was over in the U.S. at the same time, and he was going through basic training, and uh, he's being taught how to fire a weapon in the U.S. Army style. But his uncle was a champion trick shooter, you know, the kind of guy from like the old Wild West shows like Buffalo Bill and Andy Oakley, you know, where you you know, you, you throw a bunch of, um, of dishes in the air and this guy's firing from the hip and he's blasting these things out of the air. So, so Rex Applegate is listening to his, uh, drill instructors, teach him how to shoot. He's like, yeah, that's not the way uncle Bob shot. Uncle Bob shot from the hip and he's way more effective than these guys. So Applegate got a commission to start studying the old trick shooters to find out what they knew. And one of the guys he went to research was wild Bill Hickok. And he went back to like the last known address of Wild Bill Hickok, which is some like saloon out somewhere in like Idaho. And he found a letter that Hickok had written but hadn't been mailed where he's describing his shooting technique. And basically what Wild Bill Hickok said is it's the same as pointing a finger. Like your finger knows where the target is. You don't have to tell your finger. So like right now, Brett, if someone startled you and you turn around really quickly – your hand would know exactly where to go. You don't have to order your hand. Your hand is going to fly in the direction of the threat. So Applegate is, uh, realizes there's, there's something here about this idea of instinctive aim. So he hears about these guys, Fairbairn and Sykes in the UK. So he flies over, ships over to see them. And not only are they teaching him shooting, they're also teaching him this street gutter, uh, gutter style of fighting. And uh, essentially, it comes down to two things. One is you go for the vulnerable spots immediately. But secondly, you use a lot of body torque and twist to use the uh, minimum amount of muscular force to disable your enemy. Right. So you're not you're not going for style points with the awesome uppercut. You are just going for the, the jugular right away. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of Fairbairn's favorite moves is he called like the, the Bronco stomp, which was that once you get your guy on the ground, you then jump up and down on his rib cage as hard as you can. <laughs> you try and pull. I mean, exactly. You, you would get you would get flagged pretty quick for that. You know, recently it's become Wing Chun has come into vogue, uh, not least because Robert Downey Jr. has become a you know devotee of Wing Chun. And, and if you saw him in in uh, like the Sherlock Holmes movie where he's in that uh, bare knuckles match, he uses some beautiful uh, Wing Chun moves to disable this like gigantic brute. So you know, Wing Chun is a very and Bruce Lee also was, was a student of Wing Chun. It's a very elegant, uh, almost dance-like approach to martial arts. And what's beautiful about Wing Chun is it's said to be the only martial art created by a woman. And there is a myth that uh, there was a, a Chinese nun in, in um, a monastery. And when the monastery was attacked, everyone was slaughtered except her. And she escaped into the wilderness. And there, by observing the animals, she learned to fight you know, with, a, with a, the grace, elegance, and speed of a jungle animal. So it's a great myth, but actually it seems to be uh, just that, just a myth. It's much more likely that Wing Chun and all of the Asian martial arts are derivatives of the ancient Greek art of Pancrasian. And Pancrasian was originated on the Greek island. This is where all the conspiracy theories come together. So the whole, the whole myth of the Minotaur, Right of of jumping and uh, jumping the bulls and getting yourself out of the labyrinth, that actually happened in the kingdom of of Minos on Crete, which really was the birthplace of um, all Greek culture. It was on the island of Crete. Pancrasian began perfected on Crete. 
it was then brought to Alexander the Great, who trained his troops in Pancrasian and then brought it into Asia as he began his eastward expansion. And so essentially, this one island nation created the basis of the martial arts, which then flowered throughout Asia and then came back to us today. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone if something happens to me? Well, so one of the first things I did, I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. 
You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of known in negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. That's crazy. So Pancration was the the no holes barred type of fighting. Like you weren't going for style points. You were just you were trying to maim and kill your opponent. Yeah, you know, it's funny. And so when you read some of the accounts of Pancration, which was always like in and out of the Olympics, they would be in the ancient Olympics and they would take it back out again, then they'd put it back in again. Uh, just because it was so brutal. And also not really spectator friendly, because sometimes a, a, a bout would end in like three seconds. So you just grab the other dude's fingers and bend his fingers back and break his fingers and he's done, you know, or you, you get him by the testicles and tear and he's out. So, um, to Pancrasian, they would always like take it out of the Olympics and the Spartans would scream bloody murder. And like, all right, we gotta, we gotta appease the Spartans. It's back in again. But again, that, that was the idea was you, you remove the gloves, you remove the rules and you let people fight exactly as they would if they're trying to survive in a combat situation. That's nuts. I guess when the uh, when they revived the Olympics in the modern era, there was debate: should we should we put this in here? And I guess they didn't put penetration in. They decided not to. Well, you know, the beautiful thing is, and what made these British um, special forces guys so perfect as students of um, the Cretan way of going about things was, you know, the, the the Brits are raised steeped in ancient Greek culture and Roman culture, so uh, for us, it's like the, you know, it's the mandatory course you got to take. You're like junior year in high school or something, but the you know British school system was based on ancient Greek culture, and you know the perfect flowering of that was Lawrence of Arabia. You know, you you take little old T. Lawrence and you stick him out in a hostile situation in the Middle East, and he draws back on this sense of the transformative art of the hero. So, not only were British kids brought up on the, you know the the myth of the ancient Greek hero, but then they actually saw it actually work when T.E. Lawrence brought it to life himself. Right. Because they were, they were turned into warriors. I like that. I get, there was a, a Hector. If we're going back to Odysseus sure. or the Iliad, um, they would some would say that Achilles was a natural-born warrior, right? He just had it in him. Um, and Hector, another great warrior, I think there's like a there's a phrase in Greek that said he had to learn how to become a warrior. And that's what actually made him probably a more superior warrior because uh, he had yeah. that sense of compassion but then that headiness about it, but then he added the skill to it. And so these are these what these like Greek resi- these uh, British resistance fighters were doing. I love that. Um, so you have the you, you, you dovetail into parkour, which is this. Uh, you know, it started in France as this like underground urban guys just having fun. Um, but how did your um, tracing the footsteps of these British resistance fighters lead you to jumping across rooftops in fr- in France? Yeah, so there are a couple of guidelines that I always have when I'm looking at this kind of stuff. Uh, you want to avoid two things. You want to avoid something that is basically useless in the modern world. So if it's a fitness tip, but it relies on like eating living goat hearts, like, all right, there's not a whole lot of practical takeaway for most people today. You know, we're not going to be eating any live beating goat hearts. 
And the second thing I try to avoid is anything that is trendy, that, that doesn't have a legacy and a long uh, timeline that can be traced. So again, if it's like, you know, PX90, it might be great, but it's something that we just kind of created for ourselves and there's no long, deep historical taproot that demonstrates that this has been effective in real life situations for a long time. So whenever I'm researching this kind of stuff, I'm looking for those two things. What's the practical takeaway? And what is the long historical lineage that proves that it actually has worked? So when I'm looking at the Cretan bounds, for instance, I'm looking at this ability to, uh, you know, race across mountaintops. I thought, okay, um, but what's the takeaway? How can we learn this kind of stuff? And it immediately draws you toward parkour. And in me specifically, what made the light bulb go off was I was in the middle of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, you know, like Amish country. And I'm coming out of like a Rite Aid uh, drugstore. And as I'm at the checkout line out the window, I see these guys that kind of like flying through the air, just like leaping through the air back and forth. And I read a little bit about parkour by that point, but I'd never actually seen it. And so I, I hustle out of the uh, drugstore and these guys are like doing these like long jumps, these precision jumps back and forth on the handicap railings outside the drugstore. And they said, yeah, yeah, you know, we, we do parkour and, you know, you, if you want to come learn, come learn with us. And they said, but if you really want to learn, you want to go to, to London to Parkour Generations, which is the, the great learning school, you know, the, the French masters, um, the Yamakaze who first created parkour, they passed on their knowledge to these teachers in London. So I ended up going there and actually studying with a with a women's only class uh, because, again, I was interested in something else, too. The, the third thing I always sort of look for is that if something I think is really native to the human species, it's got to be native to both sides of the species. It can't just be just dudes only or women only. And one thing about parkour is it is a egalitarian sport. Uh, women are just as good at it as guys are. So that was it. I basically apprenticed myself to the parkour teachers to see if what they were doing was a good modern approximation of what the Cretans have been doing for thousands of years. So they're taking advantage of the fascia again. Yeah, again, it's a, it's a fascinating thing to, to do. You know, when um, the first time I tried to do what's, what's known as a turn vault, uh, it's a very simple vault. And you see a parkour dude do it, it looks like nothing. And then you try to do it, and you're banging the crap out of your knees, and you're not getting off the ground. And then they just show you the the way of just changing your center of balance, about lifting your butt and balancing yourself, and essentially letting your own natural balance take over. And it, it's it's really amazing how in a span of like 90 seconds, you go from feeling something is impossible to feeling something is easy and you can fly. And so the, this uh, discussion about parkour leads naturally to MoveNAT. Um, so how is MoveNAT? Well, first, can you explain what MoveNAT is for our listeners? We've written about MoveNAT. We've had Irwan write an article or two for us on the site about it. But for our listeners who aren't familiar with it, what is MoveNAT and how is what they're doing resurrecting this idea of ancient Greek physical fitness? Well, I, I got a great story about MoveNet, Brett, which I think is, is sort of unique to um, anyone who's become familiar with Erwan Lacour. I first heard about Erwan because of Barefoot Ted, uh, the guy that I wrote about a good bit in Born to Run. Right. So when I first came back, we were down the Copper Canyons in 2006 for that ultra marathon with the, uh, with the Tatamata Indians. And when I came back, I thought, you know what, this could be a really good book. So I went around to spend time with every person who'd been down on the trip with us and re-interview them and, and learn more about their, their lives. So I went out to Burbank where Barefoot Ted was living at the time 
and hung out with him for a couple of days. And while I was with him, you know, one day he opens up his email and he's like, huh, this is interesting. Uh, he goes, hey, you know, you, you might want to take a look at this. And it was an email from some French guy named Erwan Lacour, who was living down in Brazil. And he had seen some posts by Barefoot Ted about minimalist running. And so Erwan had contacted Ted to just get more information. So I, I became pretty fascinated and I contacted Erwan myself. And a few months later, I was heading down to Brazil and he was like taking me through the Brazilian rainforest, training with him and a bunch of like UFC fighters, you know, these Brazilian jiu-jitsu dudes who were training with Erwan, uh, literally like in the, in, in the rainforest along the beach down in Brazil. So that was, that was, I think, my first intro. I don't, I don't think it was even called MoveNet at the time. might have been. So what Erwan was doing was um, modernizing the idea of the natural method, the méthode naturelle of a guy named Georges Hebert. And, you know, Georges Hebert was a French naval officer back in the early 1900s. And he was stationed in a troop ship off the coast of the island of Martinique when the, when the volcano exploded. And he, he led the rescue operation trying to get people off the island, but he was just horrified to see people die because they couldn't like swim a few yards offshore or they were struggling to, to pick up a child or they, they couldn't climb up a rope. They, these basic physical reactions that every other species would handle no problem, yet for some reason humans couldn't do these things. So he began to develop this thing called the natural method, which is based on the 10 natural human movements that every human should be able to master. And, and very basic things, you know, to run, to walk, to uh, to climb, to jump, to throw, to catch, to defend, to attack. And he created these obstacle courses in uh, France to train first French naval officers and then everybody else in the natural method. Unfortunately, you know, after World War One, most of the natural method teachers were, were killed during the fighting. And the natural method essentially disappeared except for in two locations. One was with David Bell, who was the son of Raymond Bell, who was a French firefighter, and the French firefighters were still training in the natural method. And the other place was with, with Erwan Lacour down in his like wacky hippie ultimate fighting camp in Brazil. Right. And and what's interesting is that this the natural method, I mean there was there's this these strands of what the ancient Greeks did. Right. It was very kind of body weight, calisthenics, learning how to use your body efficiently and effectively. And he was able to pick that up uh, and incorporate it. And like, I guess Erwan is continuing that tradition as well. And the sad thing too, Brett, is like when you start to examine this stuff, you just feel like, dude, why is there even any debate about this? Like, wh why is there even any question about the best way to exercise and get in shape? If you do one move net session, to me, essentially, the conversation's over. Like, that's all you need to do. And again, the best evidence is, is Erwan himself. You know, if you check out his video of him just racing around Corsica, like leaping into rivers and pushing logs and stuff, like that's that's the dude I want to be. Right. Yeah. I mean, he looks like he looks like Tarzan. I mean, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been my wife and I've been doing MoveNet. So is my son. And we love it. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's like play. I mean, you're playing, but you're getting a good workout. How, how old is your son? How old He's son? Uh, five. Do you um, where, where are you based? Based in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Hmm. So I guess I was trying to think. There are usually parkour communities everywhere. I'm not sure. There about is a small one here in Tulsa, um, but yeah, we have a we have some really good. We have two good MoveNet instructors here, fortunately, okay. which is great because usually yeah. Tulsa doesn't have things like that, but uh, we do. 
Um, and you know, what's interesting too, the MoveNet thing and talking about this natural, the method, the natural method. Um, I had a, a two guys on my podcast a few months ago or about a month ago. Uh, they did a documentary about La Sierra High. Have you heard about these, this place? No, no. You, okay. You need to check this out. So there was this high school, uh, it called La Sierra in California during the 1960s. They had this intense physical education program and it was like basically the, the natural method movement. And it was right. Right. And it's what JFK, like JFK saw what they were doing. It was body weight. They're doing these obstacle courses and JFK said like, that's the program we need in all of our high schools. Um, and it's fine, but then it died. It went away because people started spending less time on physical education. They want to spend more time preparing for tests and whatnot. Um, but I mean, it's a fascinating. Again, it's just this idea that they're taking this ancient ideal, and like the the guy who invented, who was leading this program, he went to the Greeks. Like he actually would study Greek philosophy, study the Greek text to figure out what they need to be doing in the gym to create strong people. Um, and yeah, going back to MoveNet, going back to this idea, this heroic idea the Greeks had was you had to be useful. I mean, that's the theme. That's the motto of MoveNet, right? Be strong to be useful. That's it. You know, but the funny thing is, though, Brett, uh, you got to slow down your content, man. You, you guys pump out so much great stuff that I actually had that La Sierra High School page from your website bookmark, but I haven't read it yet. But that's that's how I know about it from from you. Uh, I just got to catch up, man. I'm still I'm still lost in Jack London right now. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but that was, you know, and the funny thing about it was, so um, George Hebert's motto was be fit to be useful. And I thought, you know, man, you could actually boil that down to two words. And th these two words become the perfect motto for your life, which is just be useful. And, and when you think about that, if you apply that test to everything you do in your life, you know, be useful. You know, as I'm going out for fast food, am I, am I really being useful? Um, wouldn't it be better if I actually learned to cook, to prepare a meal and picked up something that's a real food instead of this, you know, bread and sugar concoction? When I go out to exercise, if I'm doing bicep curls, am I, am I really being useful? You know, or maybe I should just climb a rope instead. And I, got, I love that as a two word test for every action in your life. Be useful. And the amazing thing is when you make that your motto, not only are you going to probably have benefits personally, but like like on a physical level, <clears throat> but it transform you, transforms you like psychologically and emotionally. Right. It, it does. And it doesn't, it doesn't turn you into like Quang Chai King, you know, like one of these like abstemious monks. It, it just is an awareness. Um, and even today, you know, when I eat something, like I just ate, I just ate four Oreos, like about two seconds before we went on this podcast. And, um, at least I was mindful. Like, All right, I don't eat these Oreos. My blood sugar sugars are going to spike. I'm going to slump afterwards. But you know what? I feel like having some Oreos. In the past, I would have just eaten the Oreos without blinking. Um, but at least now, if you're aware and you're making decisions, you're doing informed mo movements. You're not just reacting to impulse. So we've talked a lot about the physical, you know, the physical feats of this Greek heroic ideal. Um, but you also explore the diet. Because you, like you said earlier, these guys were able to go days without food, but they were not just sitting around doing nothing. They were trekking over mountains. So what was it about the diet on Crete that allowed these individuals to, to do that? So, you know, one of the first accounts when I was reading this amazing account of George Sikandakis, the uh, Cretan foot messenger, he writes this one story about how uh, he was – lost in the mountains for a couple of days delivering these messages and 
you know, there's a death sentence hanging over his head. If he's spotted, he's dead. There's, there's no interrogation. The uh, German force is going to put a bullet in his head and kick his body off a cliff. So he's got to stay off the trails, uh, which often meant just foraging for food on his own. And at one point, he describes being in this little cave, and the only food he could find was some leftover um, horse feed, you know, some some hay. So he takes the hay, and he knew that dried grass in his own state would be toxic. So the only way, the old Cretan shepherd trick was to boil it seven times and then drink the water. So this guy takes the hay, he boils it seven times, and then he drinks the water. Now, if you've ever eaten dried grass, there is zero caloric uh, outtake from dried grass you've boiled seven times. This guy's put nothing in his body except for like Dunkin' Donuts coffee. And so that was my question. How the hell is this guy surviving? And I think the thing was he was relying on the idea of using fat as fuel. He was able to change his metabolism. So instead of being on a constant sugar cycle that most of us are on, he was on a fat as fuel cycle where he could tap into his own natural body fat, which you know, at this point in my life, I could probably walk to California from Pennsylvania without a bite of food with you know the 18% body fat I've got on my body. So yeah, they, they had a high fat diet, so a lot of goat, a lot of goat meat, goat fat, um, and it's still like that today. That's how the Cretans are still eating today, and I guess they're one of the healthiest people on the planet. Yeah, again, you know, it's, all all the threads ultimately connect. You know, so you look at what the paleo diet is today, uh, and its connection to the Mediterranean diet, which essentially was the Minoan diet, and essentially it's it's the same diet that Michael Pollan talks about. You know, eat real food, mostly vegetables, not too much. Now, eat a, a palm-sized chunk of some kind of high-fat food with a bunch of vegetables, and, and you're good to go. And that's basically the Cretan diet. The Cretans will butcher a goat. They will preserve the meat. They will eat the meat on the fly, and they will forage for what's known as orta. And orta, anywhere you go on Crete today, you will see people walking around like picking weeds and sticking them into those blue plastic shopping bags. Uh, that's orta, and orta is just wild greens that are cultivated. And you know, we did a great thing. There's, um, we did a series on Outside Magazine, Outside Online, where I had this woman from um, Brooklyn come down to my house and forage with us, and she's Greek by heritage. And later, she went out literally like two steps out my back door to something that I just look at as a little bit of lawn. And she said, "Oh, here, you know, here's mustard greens. You know, here's here's clover. Here's dandelion." And she was just picking all these calorically dense, um, you know, uh, phytonutrient rich foods, literally arms reach from my back door. It's amazing. Yeah. And the, the eating on the fly, uh, with the, the Cretans, I guess part of the reason is that because, um, I remember reading a book about Cretan shepherd life is that if you stole a, a goat, like you had to eat it right away to destroy the evidence. <laughs> like you had to make a fire and eat it really fast. So you, no one can know that you stole the goat. And that was yeah. Crazy. Interesting. Yeah. Well, again, all those things go hand in hand too, because um, you know you don't want the meat to spoil. You don't want to be carrying it around. Uh, you want to be quick and loose on the fly. So get the fat in your belly, hide the remains, and be on your way. Get going. So, Chris, I'm I'm curious. How did um, writing this book change you? Uh, are you still doing move nat parkour? I mean, you eat, you ate some Oreos. Yeah, uh, can we delete that part about the Oreos. Right. <laughs> Give it that part. In, in, in a lot of ways, but I'll tell you, Brett, the, the the most important impact was again the mindfulness. It's just being aware. Uh, when I went through uh, this guy named Phil Maffetone, who essentially took the the fattest fuel secret of the ancient Greeks and he applied it to uh, top Ironman triathletes, 
Well, he created something called the two-week test. And what I love about Phil is, you know, he's not one of these hardcore in-your-face uh, gurus. He's um, more of like a 1970s hippie. He's like, hey, man, I'm not going to try and change your mind. You can change your own mind. And the way he does that is instead of telling you what to eat, he says do the two-week test. And the two-week test means you re- remove all the high glycemic foods for your, from your diet for 14 days. And on the 15th day, go ahead and have yourself a piece of bread and see how you feel. What I love about it is it strips away all the, bar- the variables. It gets you back to the, the basic you know, factory preload. And then as you add the variables, you can assess how you physically feel. And the be- beauty of this to me, by the time I was done with Natural Born Heroes, after having learned parkour and, and MoveNet and doing the two-week test, um, understanding about my fascia is that it just made me so much more mindful that everything has a cause and an effect. If I eat the Oreos, I'm going to pay the price for it. If I don't eat the Oreos, I'm, I'm going to feel better. If I, uh, for breakfast, for instance, eat a high-fat, almost zero-carb breakfast, I'm going to feel really good to bang out the door for a good two-hour trail run a little while later. If I eat a bunch of oatmeal with honey on top, I'm going to feel sluggish the rest of the morning. Uh, prior to doing Natural Born Heroes, I never really connected those cause and effects. If I felt sluggish, well, I just drank some coffee. I tried to combat it that way. I didn't try and preload by understanding what was causing my body to react in a certain way. Uh, here's, here's another like little example. So recently, I was doing this 50K trail run and um, started to get a real sort of severe pain in my groin. Now, in the past, I would have assumed, okay, well, you got to pain in the groin as the weight goes. You, you, you pull the muscle. But then I stopped analyze what I was doing and realize I'm not, I'm not bouncing anymore. I'm, I'm trudging. And even though I was tired, I made the effort of adding that, that quick, sharp fascia cretin bounce back to my stride. And in a matter of a couple of seconds, you know, the, the, the pain, which ordinarily would have caused me to drop out of the race, just disappeared. That's awesome. Well, Chris, this has been a fascinating conversation. Like we re- literally like scratched the surface. There's a lot more we could dig into. Um, so I highly recommend uh, listeners to go out and get your book. But where can people learn more about uh, your book? We, uh, we did a really cool series on outside online, uh, which looked at we broke down a bunch of the different skills. Uh, I did something on parkour, on foraging for food, on again one of the guys we didn't even talk about that uh, crazy Stoughton warrior Percy Serity of uh, of Australia. So. Check out um, Outside Online for the Natural Born Heroes series and then the book itself. And then anybody wants to ask me questions, honestly, fire away. I got an email address on my website. Awesome. Chris McDougall, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Brett, I'll do this anytime, man. I had a blast. My guest today was Christopher McDougall. He's the author of the book Natural Born Heroes. You can find that on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. And really go pick up a copy. It's a really fun, informative read. And also make sure to check out the show notes at aom.is slash heroes. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever it is you use to listen to the podcast. Help spread the word. And if you can't give us a review, just recommend us to a friend. I'd really appreciate it. As always, I appreciate the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.